Good morning, church. We're going to go into scripture reading this morning, and we are inching our way through John. We have a new passage today. We're moving forward. So that's exciting. Um, so if you'd like to turn to uh, John with me, we're going to be in chapter 3 today. If you'd like to follow along um, with a physical Bible, there are Bibles in the pews in front of you. And we're going to be reading from verses 22 through 36. All right, John chapter 3, starting at verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Ainon near Salim, because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized, and this was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, the man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the word of God for God, gives the spirit without limit. The father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the son will not see life for God's wrath remains on them. Amen. morning. Hey, I'm Adam. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, my wife and I moved here just about a month ago or a little less than a month ago from California um, where we spent the eight, last eight years. Uh, I was at a church in San Francisco area. And so if we haven't met, I'd love to meet you. Um, one of the first things when we moved to Cal California eight years ago, one of the first things uh, I did was pick up surfing as a hobby because it was we were 20 minutes from the beach, not like the beautiful beach, but like the Northern California, very cold beach, but the beach nonetheless, right? With the ocean. And so I thought, hey, let's, p I'll pick up surfing. This will be fun. Um, and what I quickly learned, one of the things you learn when you are surfing is one of the first things you got to do when you get out there is once you figure out where you are and kind of where the waves are and where you want to be, you got to find a reference point on shore, right? And so I got to figure out how to use this clicker. All right. I'm not used to that. All right. Um, because, uh, and so you've got to choose something on shore, right? Like a tree or a, or a bush or a boulder, something on shore that you can line yourself up with so you can know where you are because you're just in this expansive ocean and you're moving. And um, because, and there's all sorts of different forces pushing you in every direction, right? So there's ripped rip currents pulling you out. There's waves pushing you in. There's currents pushing you left and right and in all kinds of different directions. And they change, 
And so, and so you never quite know where you are, and it can feel like you're just sitting still, just bobbing in the water, and pretty soon you're a quarter mile down the beach. And so you need a reference point. And, and what I learned quickly is that not all reference points are created equal, right? And, and because you, you want to pick something that you can, like, is obvious and you can see quickly, right? And so the first couple times out, I picked, like, this, you know, a truck in the parking lot that was, like, like a bright red truck or whatever. Well, guess what? Trucks move, right? <laughs> And so, you know, you like, you, you get toppled over by a wave and then you get up and you try to figure out where you are and where you should be paddling to. And then the truck's not there anymore and you can't figure out where you are. Um, and, and so you can use all kinds of things as a reference point, but if you don't pick the right thing, you end up lost or at worst um, in danger. And one of the great, I think one of the greatest ironies of our time in our day and age is that in an age where we have instant and convenient access to more information than any human being in all of human history has ever had, we as a society are at least as confused, if not much more confused, about really baseline things, about what the truth is, about, uh, about what constitutes reality, about what produces good in the world, and what makes human flourishing, what is good, what is a human being even. Like all of these questions, we're more confused about them now with more information than we were before. And the problem is we're living through this time, and this time is a little bit like a turbulent ocean, and there's a lot of forces pushing in a lot of different directions, and they change directions sometimes. And so for individuals, it's increasingly difficult for us to tell who's right. Who should we believe? Who's telling the truth? Who's authoritative on this particular subject when it comes to things like parenting or work or, or politics or whatever, right? And so what we do, we naturally do this as human beings, we create reference points. There are, we, we naturally look for sources of truth that we can trust, that we can measure other claims of truth up against, right? So for many people, especially early on in your life, it's your, it's your family, right? Or your upbringing. That's what is the source of truth that gets measured against, right? So what your family says about things, what your family believes about the world are the things that you believe about the world, at least primarily, and the way that you can tell if somebody else is telling the truth is how well it aligns with what your family has said and sort of the worldview and the, the way that your family thinks about the world and how you've internalized that in your upbringing. But there's lots of other reference points people choose. Sometimes people, sometimes people kind of follow their upbringing and their family their whole life, but other times they'll change and they'll go, you know, maybe it's peers or friends, or for others it's life experience. You have some life experience and it becomes a defining reality which tells you what the world is really like. Or still others, it's the scientific method or education, or maybe it's simply societal norms. It's the dominant view, the culture you exist in, like kind of what everyone knows and believes. That's your gauge for truth, what's right and what the way the world really works. And so then you measure everything else against that. So anytime anybody says something different than that, you go, well, they must be wrong. Most commonly what happens with us, though, is that we're not so singularly focused about it. What we, what you do, what I do, is you use your own sense, like your own analysis, your own intuition, your own reasoning as a reference point. And so you listen to things and you go, eh, that doesn't sound quite right, based on some amalgamation of the things like your life experiences and your upbringing and your education and your, right, like, and your own intuition and whatever. And so the problem with that, with every one of those reference points though, and particularly with the reference point of using yourself as the measure and your own like ability to analyze the truth, is that all of those things move on you over time. Every one of them moves. 
Now listen, that's not to say they aren't good things. It's not to say those things don't have truth in them or they, they don't they'll contain truth. But that is to say every one of those sources of truth will over time change their mind, shift, and move, and sometimes so subtly that it's really hard to detect that that's going on. But if you're using that as your reference point to know where you are, to know what is true and where, where that line is, the problem is you can pretty quickly be a long way off the truth and not even realize it. Still be convinced in your own mind that you're right on. And so what you really need is a better reference point. You need a reference point that's not going to move. You've got to pick the right one. One that you can measure against everything else, everything else against. So when your family or your friends or your society or your education or whatever, the, or, or the rest, align with the truth, you can identify it and affirm it and go, yes, that's, that's right. And when they are either opposed or even just subtly misaligned, you can, rea- you can realize it and correct for it. But how do you pick that reference point? What or who should be your reference point that will keep you aligned with what is true in the world and in a city with competing truth claims and turbulent tides of opinion? Well, in our passage today, John tells us why you should use Jesus as your reference point. Right? Maybe that doesn't come as a surprise at church. That's what, that's what the argument I'm going to make, right? But he implores you that you should believe in Jesus, the one who has come from God. Okay, so let's, let's dive in. First, the one, first thing we see in our passage as we make our way through the book of John is that Jesus has grown in popularity. And so Jesus and John the Baptist, which is a different John than wrote the book. There's two Johns. Um, Jesus and John the Baptist are both baptizing people in this area of the Judean wilderness known for its springs of water. And, um, and John's disciples start to notice that while John had been like the rock star guy, everyone was going to John. Well, John's disciples started to notice that people were, you know, all of a sudden their crowd was thinning out a little bit and Jesus' crowd was growing. You know, people were making their way over to Jesus. In fact, a bunch of the people who used to be following John had moved over to Jesus. And so John, and meanwhile, John's disciples get into an argument with some guy. The text just says some Jew. He doesn't, doesn't tell us what. It doesn't tell us what they were arguing about. It, most likely they were either arguing about like the merits of John's baptism versus other ceremonial cleansing in Judaism, or they were arguing about like the merits of John's baptism versus Jesus' baptism. Either way, whatever they were arguing about left John's disciples feeling a little bit insecure about what was going on here. And so, and you can feel how this would kind of happen, right? Like, like I'll put this in um, business terms. Like, if you were a social media platform, let's say you worked for Instagram, right? And TikTok's numbers keep going up and up and up and up, right? And Instagram numbers, you're starting to dwindle, right? You're starting to, you're on the Facebook curve, right? It's like the older and older people like Instagram and younger and younger people don't, right? And you're, you start— and then you like start talking, you're like at a bar with your friends on Friday night and your friends are like, well, you know what? I don't even think Instagram's all that great anymore. I don't know if it was ever all, all it was really cracked up to be. TikTok's way better, right? And so, right, and you work for Instagram and you're like, okay, I gotta go, I gotta go to the boss, right? So you go to your boss and you're like, hey, listen, I don't know if you know this, but people are talking bad about us. We're losing market share here. This is, this is going poorly. We gotta, we gotta get back to number one here, Right? And that's kind of what happens. It turns out, though, that John knew he was losing market share. And not only was he okay with that, not only was he at peace with it, he was actually thrilled about it, overjoyed that people were going over to Jesus. In fact, that was John's hope and plan all along. Because John says Jesus is the Messiah, God's anointed Savior who would reestablish God's rule on earth. 
And John uses the metaphor of a groom, a bride, and a best man. And he explains that he's the best man. John says, listen, I'm the, I'm the best man in the story. Okay? Jesus is the groom, and the crowds of people these, that are flocking to us are the bride. And the job of the best man was to get everything ready. They were kind of like the wedding planner. The, the job of the best man was to get everything ready for the wedding and make sure the groom got there, to make sure the bride got there, to make sure all the people got there, there was food, er, like everything was ready, and take care of everything so that the groom can arrive and can focus on the one thing he's supposed to be focused on, which is the bride. And the bride can arrive and be focused on the one thing she's supposed to be focused on, which is the groom. And the best man function so was, was like this wedding planner, and, and he's supposed to take care of all the details and make sure everything goes according to plan. But once the groom shows up, so before the groom shows up, the best man is like, he's the man in charge. He's the one everyone is looking to. Like, like if you need something, you go to the best man, you ask him, because he's the one that knows everything. But as soon as the groom shows up, at change, the best man is supposed to fade into the background, and he's not really supposed to be seen anymore. His job becomes visible. His job is, a, is a, in effect, finished. The best man's great joy, the whole point of what he is doing, is to watch the ceremony go off without a problem, to see his best friend get married, and to see that it all runs smoothly. And so John reminds his disciples, I, I'm the best man. I'm not the groom here. I, like, yes, I have been in charge. I'm the one that everyone's been going to. But the point of that was to get ready for this other guy to come, this Messiah to come, and then everyone, the, once the groom shows up, everyone should be focused on him. No one should be coming to me. And right, John's like, listen, I clearly told you I'm not the Messiah. It wasn't me. My job was always simply to prepare the way for him to, to get here. So that, the, the, so that when the Messiah came, the bride was there and she was ready, right? And the bride is the, the people, all, all the crowds of people, and they would be united to him. And in fact, Jesus, the fact that Jesus was there and the people are flocking to him in droves is what John had always dreamed of. He'd always, what he'd always hoped to have. He was what he worked his whole career to get to. And so now he experiences the complete and utter joy of a best man who's watching his friend get married, and it all go off without a hitch. And so John tells his disciples, he must become greater, I must become less. Right? And then John gives us the reason for that, namely that Jesus has come directly from God. Okay, so John speaks as one who, he says, he speaks as one who's from the earth. That is, John is a human being. Someone who came from dust and will return to dust. He's a great prophet, but at the end of the day, he's still just a man. But Jesus, he says, is not just a man. Jesus is fully human, but he's also fully God, and he has come from heaven, and he has been in the throne room of the Father. So when he speaks, he knows what he's talking about. Okay, so it's a little bit like this. Um, I've never been to Lambeau Field. I've, I've also never been to Lambeau Field like in the winter, like, like in the snow for like one of those crazy games, right? But I could tell you a little bit about what that would be like, right? Because I've watched enough football in my life and I, right, and so like, and I, and I've heard people talk about it and whatever. And so I could tell you, like, if you asked me, I could describe it to you. I could talk about the wind and the snow and the hardcore fans. And I could tell you about the tradition that the Packers have of losing to my Niners in the playoffs. And I could tell you, like, I could tell you all these things, right? It'd be pretty accurate. You guys like that one? Great. Wasn't quite sure how that was going to go. Um, we'll leave that up for a little bit. Um, <laughs> Right, but my, my description of what Lambo is like would pale in comparison to someone who, say, had season tickets, who grew up in Green Bay, had season tickets their whole life, and, um, 
and had, had actually been there, had actually seen it, had actually experienced it, and felt the cold, and, and heard the crowd, right? John is like someone who has seen heavenly things on TV, and he's heard about them, but he's never actually been there. So his description is not inaccurate. It's, it's right. It's just not anywhere close to Jesus's description. Jesus has been there for eternity. He knows exactly what it's like. So he's testifying, and he's talking about things he's actually seen and actually heard, not just heard about. And Devin talked about last week how Jesus, because of this, Jesus is often confusing to us because he is speaking of these define, these category-defying realities. We simply don't have the full capacity to, in our human understanding to understand because we've never been in heaven. We're from the earth, and Jesus is from above. Therefore, when Jesus speaks, he does so with supreme authority. Everything that Jesus does and says is exactly what God does and says. So much so that whoever—that John says this, whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. That's a weird statement, right? Like, of course God is truthful. Like, like God tells us, God defines what truth is, right? So of course God is truthful. But what John is saying here is that to believe Jesus is to believe God. That when you believe Jesus, you are saying, yes, God, you are truthful. God, Jesus is saying exactly what Jesus, what God has said. And to not believe Jesus, the opposite is true. To not believe Jesus is to call God a liar. Right? So it's a little bit like, imagine a king sends his son, the prince, to another country on like a diplomatic mission. And the whole point of the diplomatic mission is to, is to be like, hey, listen, we just want peace. And that's, that's all we've ever wanted. We, we just want to be friends with you. And the, the son gets there and he conveys, the prince gets there and he conveys exactly what his father has said. He says only what his father has said, exactly what his father has said, and all that his father has said. And the, the court of this, uh, the, the people in the court of this other country, they go, they go, you're lying. No way. You, you guys are just, you're trying to manipulate us. You really want to attack us. You're lying. We don't believe you, right? What are they also saying? They're also saying that the king is lying, right? And John is saying that that, that, is, that same dynamic is at work here with Jesus. Like, Jesus is speaking directly from God. And so, for those who, if you will accept what he says, you are declaring that God is truthful. But if you are, if you reject what he says, you are declaring that God is a liar. And John says that he's, so John says he's glad that the crowds are going over to Jesus and away from him because Jesus is talking about things he's actually seen. And Jesus is full of the Spirit of God without limit. Like every other prophet, including John, previously who had had the Spirit of God on them, had it to the degree which, with, with which they needed to accomplish their assignment. Right? God gave them the Spirit that they needed. He gave them their daily bread, right, would be another way to put it. But Jesus had the Spirit without limit. And, and God has entrusted everything to Jesus. Jesus is from God. Now this has three implications for us, three imperatives that that requires of us. Um, the first is this. The first is to believe Jesus. Okay, believe Jesus. That is, it is imperative that you believe the things that Jesus said. Okay, so, um, right, because what good is a reference point if you don't believe it's, if it, it tells the truth, right? 
Now, that sounds really simple. It sounds, yeah, of course, I should believe what Jesus said, right? But it's actually incredibly difficult to do because there are a lot of other competing voices out there, and many of them are louder and more popular, and frankly, they make more sense to us. And so what, happened, what ends up happening, though, is that we, we find these human beings or these societies of human beings or these groups of human beings or whatever that we like that have some truth or some wisdom that sounds right to us or makes us feel good, and we believe them. And at, at some point, even if it, what they say at the beginning aligns with what Jesus says, and it is true, right, at some point they're going to say something that doesn't—either that's adamantly opposed to what Jesus says or may just be a little bit misaligned, but just a little bit misaligned gets, sends you off in the wrong direction. And what will happen is you go, oh, well, they're my reference point. They're what I believe in, so therefore they're truthful, and then you'll end up off of the truth. And you have—and and here's how you can know this is happening to you. You'll have this subtle switch of using their opinion to judge if Jesus is right as opposed to using Jesus to judge if they are right. Right? And so it might be a politician like President Biden or former President Trump or some other politician. It might be a political party platform that you ascribe to. It might be cultural commentators that you like or even other religious figures. Or most people, though, don't even think so singularly about it, right? They just—most people, it's just it's simply like sort of societal norms or the culturally agreed on assumptions, whether that's the culture at broad or like a particular culture that you like and ascribe to and kind of fit within. The thing, but the things that everybody knows, right? The things that we simply acquiesce to, instead of measuring those assumptions against what Jesus said, we measure what Jesus said against those assumptions. Well, everyone knows this, so Jesus can't be right about this, right? So questions like, how should you parent? How should you date? How should you treat other people? How should you use your disposable income? How should you interact with power? How should you live? Like, Jesus should be the reference point. He's the first thing— he gets the first say in all that, and everything else has to align to him. Because he has the divine knowledge and wisdom. But what's so difficult about this, especially, especially for educated people, sometimes the educated people think they're like, oh, no, we're smarter than this. We don't have this problem. No, no, no. Educated people, it's almost harder for you. Right? Which Madison is a place of great education, Right? It's because sometimes Jesus is really confusing. He's talking about these heavenly realities that are so far beyond us. And so sometimes, and even often, what he says doesn't fit into your plausibility structures. Which another way, a more simple way to say that is, it doesn't sound right to you. <laughs> Sounds like Jesus is wrong. Right? So let me give you a few examples of this, right? Jesus talks about loving your enemy a lot. Okay? Well, that, we'd all like to think that sounds good, except when you actually experience an enemy attacking you, what it feels like you should do at work, in your home life, or political stage, or whatever, is you should discredit them, you should fight back, you should destroy them, you should obliterate them on social media, right? And, 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 right? And, and because that's what somebody told you is the best thing to do. Like, if somebody attacks you, you gotta hit back. Otherwise, you're gonna be a doormat, right? Somebody told you that at some point, and you believed them. And so when Jesus says you should turn the other cheek, you're like, that doesn't sound right, <laughs> right? Or he tells you to turn the other cheek. You're like, all right, I'll take you. I'll, I'll do that, Jesus. And then you do. You turn the other cheek, and you get hit on the other cheek too. And you're like, well, that didn't work. Jesus must be wrong. Right? Or Jesus tells you to forgive people. And, but some things really ought to be— like, some things really are unforgivable, aren't they? Somebody told you that at some point, right? You believed them. 
Jesus tells you to be generous with your money, to give it away. That's the way to true wealth and, and happiness and joy and all the, right? Like, who, like, that's so counterintuitive. <laughs> that is, giving away your money is not going to make you rich, right? That's sort of the whole point. Richness is the accumulation of money. If you give it away, you're doing the opposite of accumulation. Like, that can't, that can't be, Jesus can't be right about that. Maybe Jesus should stick to his religious lane and we should like, you know, talk to some investors about what to do with our money. Or Jesus tells you not to get divorced because, right, and, and, and you, but you go, he can't possibly expect me to stay in a bad marriage. That can't possibly be what God would want, right? Like it's making me miserable and God wants me to be happy and, and, and my, my friends told me that I should get out of this marriage. It's bad for me, right? And so you start to measure Jesus' words about, by what other people have said or other other kind of ways of thinking have said. He tells you that you should tell the truth and have integrity, which seems like a highly ineffective way to get ahead in business. He tells you to reserve sex for marriage, which if you're single sounds almost like not just bad or unfortunate, like it sounds repressive, like psychologically repressive, doesn't it? Because we've been told it, ha it is. He tells you to honor your father and mother. And man, high school students, that sounds nuts, doesn't it? Right? Like, because someone along the way told you your parents should earn your respect. And if they don't earn it, then you shouldn't have to respect them. And if they're crazy, then you shouldn't have to honor them. And you go on and on. I mean, there's hundreds of these, right? But, but the point is, at some point, you have to decide who you're going to believe. Who's the reference point? Is it Jesus or is it someone else, right? And we, and we use all kinds of references, right? Freud or T Taylor Swift or Jordan Peterson or whoever, right? Ted Lasso. Like, like we use all kinds of reference points all the time. Most often, I really think what we use is our, you believe yourself, your own wisdom, your own knowledge, your own analytical, analytical ability to go, to figure out what is right, what is true. And you believe that, and when that doesn't align with Jesus, you go with your gut instead of going with Jesus. Right? When those different possible sources of truth are opposed to each other or are misaligned with each other, which is the one that gets to be your reference point? Which is the one that interprets all the others? Which is the one that says, this is what's true, therefore this one over here is wrong, must be wrong? Right? Believe Jesus. He's the one that comes from above. He's the one who sees heaven has seen heavenly reality. Every other potential source of truth is from the earth, even your own intuition. Jesus is the one who comes from above. He's seen full reality. Reality is beyond you. So that's the first imperative. Believe Jesus. Second, believe in Jesus, which is related to believing Jesus, but is slightly different. Okay? So um, believing in Jesus is believing Jesus about a specific thing. So in last week's passage, Jesus talked to Nicodemus, and he brought up this story in the book of Numbers where God, God's people had been disobedient and they grumbled against God and they accused God. And so what God did was God sent snakes, poisonous, venomous snakes, to, as his wrath upon them. And these snakes started biting everyone and all these people that got bit started dying everywhere. And it was, it was God's punishment on them. It was God's wrath mediated out to them for their sin. And the snakes were biting people and killing people. And because of his wrath, people repented. They went, oh my gosh, we, we totally messed up. We turned away from God. We feel bad about that. And so they went to God and they said, God, we're so sorry. We shouldn't have done that. Please 
forgive us. And God said, okay, I will be, I'll be merciful to you. But what he, what's really interesting about the story is God doesn't take away the snakes. The snakes are still there. The snakes are still in the camp, and they're still biting people. And, and people are still getting sick from the venom. But God tells Moses, here's what you're going to do. You're going to make a bronze snake. And you're going to form it, and you're going to put it up on a pole, and you're going to stick it there. And if anyone gets bit, and they're dying, if they just look at the snake— they, they'll get better. They won't die. My wrath, I'll remove my wrath from them. And Jesus, as he's talking to Nicodemus, compares himself to that snake, right? Jesus is the one that if you have been disobedient to God and grumbled against him and accused him and sinned against God, which is everyone, therefore you are under his wrath. And then you are in the process of dying, right? You've been bitten by a snake, and you're not dead yet, but you're going to be. And it's only a matter of time before the venom does its work. But if you would just look at Jesus, you will not die, but you will be saved, right? If you would just have enough faith to go, okay, I'm going to look up at Jesus, and as I do, I believe that the venom will stop its work of killing me. That simple act of faith of looking at Jesus reverses the curse of sin and will save you from death. Jesus says, that's me. I'm, I'm the snake that you need to look to to save you from God's wrath. And so when John says in verse 36, whoever believes, uh, in verse 36, that whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, that's what he means. That's what he's talking about, believing in Jesus in the specific claim that is only by looking at him and trusting in him that you can be saved from the curse of God's wrath, that you look up at Jesus on the cross, on the pole, to be saved that it isn't by the accumulation of your good works that outweigh your sin that you are saved. It isn't by turning your life around that you are saved. It isn't by achievement or success or wealth that you are saved. It is not by your education or great learning that you are saved. It is not by other people's willingness to forgive you that you are saved. It is not even by your own willingness to forgive yourself for the things you've done that you are saved. None of those things will save you from the venom that is flowing through your blood. Now listen, some of those things might make you feel a little better, right? They may be like ibuprofen. They'll, they'll stop the pain for a little bit, but it's coming back. It's still going to kill you. The only thing that will actually save you, that will remove God's wrath, is to look to Jesus. And if you won't look to Jesus, what it says is that God's wrath still remains on you. So if you're stubborn and you continue to look to other things to save you, that venom is going to kill you. It's only a matter of time. And so if you won't look at Jesus up on the cross and go, this is the thing. This is it. This is the, this is the medicine I need. This is the antivenom I need. Then you won't live. But if you believe in Jesus, that is to say, if you believe simply by looking up at him, lifted on a pole on the cross, you will live. And if you've never believed in Jesus like that before, you can do that right now, right? Your sin, the thing that has caused you to experience the curse of death and that, that, and that is keeping you from experiencing life to the fullest, can be forgiven and you can be made right with God such that he sees you per, as perfectly just and righteous despite everything you've done simply because you believed in Jesus. You looked up to him on the cross and you believed that that was sufficient to heal you. Now that sounds too easy, but that's exactly what John is saying here. And it's what Jesus has just said. So believe him. Believe in him. Believe him about this specific reality. And for those of you who are already Christians, this is a truth that you have to keep believing. Right? Because um, 
because we have this tendency to believe that initial salvation comes through believing in Jesus, but that sanctification or growing in holiness comes through like doing good stuff and feeling really guilty when we do bad stuff. But that's not true. Sanctification comes through the same faith that saved you in the first place. That when you sin, all God requires for, for forgiveness is for you to believe both eternal life and the utter fullness of life right now comes through looking at Jesus. So that when you're a terrible parent that day, right, or you compromise your integrity, or you laugh at something you shouldn't laugh at, or you look at something you shouldn't look at, or whatever else, you can look to Jesus, and your sin can be removed from you, and you can live in the freedom to do what pleases God and experience the joy that comes from that. Trust that though you have sinned, if you will just look up at the cross, you can have life forever and the fullness of life right now. So believe in Jesus. And then third, point to Jesus. In some sense, John gives us the aphorism that ought to define all of our lives, right? He says, he must become greater, I must become less. Right? And John, John was uniquely pointing forward to the Messiah, and, but we are pointing back to the Messiah. We, the, our, our life ought to exhibit the same sort of purpose to point back to him. That is, everything you're working towards is meant to point people to Jesus, that they might see him and believe in him, right? You're like someone who was bitten by the snake. If you're a Christian, you're like someone who was bitten by the snake and who has looked up to Jesus and, and been saved from the brink of death. <laughs> and you got all kinds of other Madisonians walking around all around you who got bit by the exact same snake. What should you do? You should point. Point, to the, point them to the thing that saved them or that saved you. And that's not to say you don't become great or accomplish great things, but that when you do, all of that serves the greater purpose of somehow pointing people to the one that is greater than you. So that your life and your ministry is all simply a sign pointing to Jesus. So that you no longer parent to be your kid's hero anymore, but to make Jesus their hero, which is going to result in you doing things like disciplining your kids and apologizing to your kids, and doing like the other hard parts of parenting that come along with it. Serving your kids, right? You no longer exist to be your spouse or your significant other's god or goddess, right? But you do the hard relational work to point them towards Jesus, even if they already know Jesus, to continually point them towards Jesus. You no longer exist to impress your boss, but to be a sign pointing your boss to Jesus through your integrity and your work ethic and your righteousness and your graciousness. You become okay with the idea that after a generation or two, you're going to die and no one's going to remember your name. And you become okay with that so long as they remember Jesus's. And not only okay with that, but it will produce great joy in you. You're, you're like the best man. You're pointing, to, you're, who's pointing the bride, these crowd, uh, crowds of Madisonians who are dying to Jesus. And when these people see Jesus and they go to Jesus and they believe in him, and they receive eternal life, and the, the joy that you experience both now and forever is indescribable. But listen, if you've been in church a while, you've probably heard this. You probably know you're, you know, you're supposed to share your faith, point to Jesus, right? But what I found in my life is that it does not take long for my vision to leak on this, right? Like, like without even intending to, I find my finger pointing back at me again that I want people's attention. I want my people's admiration rather than fading into the background and simply pointing to Jesus, right? Like, like I had this epiphany this week as I was preparing the sermon. I was like, you know, it's funny. I, I am preaching a sermon about pointing to Jesus and I 
am thinking about what people are going to think about me. Right? Like that's the, <laughs> like that's, like it's, it slips that easily, right? Like are people going to think, am I as smart as Nick? And am I, am I going to be funny? And right, like, right? Like how quickly that can happen in the midst of you thinking you're doing this religious thing. They're thinking you're pointing people to Jesus and you actually are focused. Like, like you have to be so intentional and wary about this of watching yourself because otherwise you will slip on this. Right? Is your life right now pointing to Jesus? Are you living like the best man? Or are you trying to upstage him? Upstage the groom? Jesus says elsewhere in the book of John, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Right? In a world with competing truth claims everywhere, in a world in a city with polarized views, in a world with advice that seems to come from every direction, remember that Jesus is the only one who has come from God. He's the only one who has divine authority, who has the fullness of God's Spirit in him so that he can be your reference point. He's the only one who actually knows what he's talking about. He is the reference point who can guide you when the tides of the world push you in every which direction. So believe in him. Believe the things he said. Believe that he is the one, the only one who can save you from your inevitable death, the curse of sin, and the wrath of God. And then believe that at the end of your life, the thing that will have brought you the most joy is not how great everyone thought you were, but how great, or, or that in the moment, but the moments that you pointed someone to Jesus and they saw how great he was and they were saved. And so at the beginning of the series, Nick said that what you believe is the most important thing about you. Yeah, so what do you, what do you believe? You are going to use something as your reference point for truth. Everyone does. You, you will use something, whether you realize it or not. Make Jesus your reference point. Believe in the one who has come from God. And as you live your life like the best man, you will find joy, your joy complete when he comes again. All right, let's pray. Father, um, we, we trust you. That our, Jesus is our only plea. He's our only opportunity for salvation. So God, we pray that, I pray for anyone in this room who's not placed their faith in Jesus. God, I pray that your spirit would work in them in such a way that they would believe, that they would look to Jesus for their salvation, they would be saved from the curse of sin. I pray for those of us who, who already call you our Savior, who have looked to you, that we would continue to look to you, and that through that we would find uh, joy and fullness of life in all new ways. And God, I pray that you would help us to get out of the way, to not upstage you as we go about living our lives, whether it's with our kids or our spouses or significant others or our coworkers or our friends or whoever, Lord. God, I pray that you would help us to point others to you such that they would believe in you. They would look to you hanging on the pole and that they would be saved. And Lord, we pray that we would get to rejoice in heaven with you for that, for all of eternity. God, we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.